We are in John chapter 4. We have been here for the last few weeks. Uh, we will be here for one more week. Um, and we are in a series called Such a Time as This, uh, where I know for me, this series has helped me to get that perspective I was just talking about, a biblical worldview to engage the culture and think about the culture and what's happening in our culture, in our world right now. And I pray that it is doing the same for you. I believe that today um, can be the same for us, um, where, where God will speak to us in maybe a really prophetic way, I hope. Um, the title of this sermon is Getting to the Heart of Worship. From John chapter 4, we'll be in verses 19 through 24. Uh, real quick, before we get into it, a little disclaimer here. Last time I taught on worship, um, it was a couple months ago, a few people were confused. We were in Second Chronicles 20, and that specific sermon was talking about the specific role that musical worship specifically plays um, in the spiritual realm where God sometimes uses uh, musical worship as a weapon against the enemy. And what I didn't mention during that sermon, which maybe I should have, was uh, that that sermon was not going to be an exhaustive dissertation on the topic of musical worship. It wasn't going to cover everything about musical worship, nor was it going to cover all the facets of worship in general. And because of that, there was some kind of confusion and discussions afterwards. There's some people, uh, maybe it was, it was unclear. So in case it's ever been unclear, there are many forms that worship takes on. Uh, we often refer to our singing to God and about God, what we just did as worship, and that is fine to do, but there are many other forms that worship takes on. Like we say every Sunday that uh, we're gonna worship God through giving, right? We're gonna worship through giving, speaking of giving of our tithes and offerings as an act of worship to God. Ultimately, the point is this. Worship is not about what we are doing physically, uh, but rather the posture of our heart with which we are worshiping God. Um, so to be clear, this also is not an exhaustive study on all of worship, but we're really just getting to the heart of it because that's what Jesus does here. If you're interested in an exhaustive study on musical worship in particular, I do have a three-part series that we did at Reality years ago. You can go to realityventura.com sermons, search for ministry of worship. Let me pray for us before we read our passage from John chapter four. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for all of the acts of worship that we get to participate in. Thank you for this moment that we just had in worshiping you through song and some of us in worshiping you through giving. Thank you that we get to now respond to your word uh, in our hearts in a posture of worship as we see your heart for us. God, we want our hearts to be full of worship as we respond to you. We ask that your presence uh, would be all about us, that your, your face would be right in front of us, that our ears would be open to only what you want to say, that our eyes would be full of nothing but your face in front of us. Speak to us from your word. We need to hear you. We need to have your perspective on things. Help us now. Help me now to preach faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in John chapter four, Jesus has taken his disciples from the south, Judea. We'll put up this map here. Uh, up to the north, they're going to the Galilee. Um, the blue lines on the outside of that map show you the route that the, any normal Jew would have taken. 
Um, but it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria, which was a thing no Jews ever did. They, they avoided Samaria at all costs. I talked about why in previous sermons, but Jesus, verse four, needed to go through Samaria up to the north. We saw the last two Sundays, uh, yeah, the last two Sundays, that there was a reason he needed to go through Samaria. He had an appointment. He had some ministry to do with this woman at the well. And he also had some kind of hard ministry to do in the disciples' hearts. Jesus is bringing what I have been calling a revival moment, both to this woman, her community, and to the people of God, to, to the, the followers of Jesus. Both groups are missing it. We spoke at length about that in the last two sermons. But eventually this woman's eyes are opened. She sees who Jesus is and she sees the great gift that God has for her. In turn, she puts her faith in Jesus. Her community hears about Jesus, puts their faith in Jesus. It is this beautiful, unexpected revival moment in the middle of Samaria. But right in the middle of this whole discussion with, with uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, the disciples are off getting food. Jesus is talking to her about like uh, her past. You know, she had been married five times. She's now living with her boyfriend. They're talking about all these things. He's offering her living water and she, all she can see is the physical need for her physical water. They're having this really like deep, well, Jesus is trying to make it deep. She doesn't get it. She's like standing about this deep, right? He's trying to like go down to the depths. In the middle of this conversation, um, this woman uh, has what appears to be this like side discussion with Jesus about worship. But I would like to propose that it's not actually an off-topic conversation, uh, as it may seem, but Jesus is really trying to get her back to the heart of, of what is happening. He's really trying to zero in her perspective on what really matters, as we will see today. And I, I think this is a really good word for us today. Uh, let's see it now in John chapter four, starting in verse 19. So Jesus just told her he knows all about her past five husbands, her current boyfriend she's living with. She responds to him in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet because he had just said things about her life that he shouldn't have known. Our ancestors, this is where it appears that she's changed the subject, right? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe she's trying to divert the conversation here. It certainly appears that way. Um, Jesus is talking about her brokenness and her failed love life. And she's trying to divert the conversation. Or maybe she genuinely just wants to know. Like, she's like, oh, he's a prophet. Maybe he'll have an answer to my question. I've been really like wondering about this. It's been really concerning to me. Like, where should I worship? Regardless, Jesus uh, has just revealed this deep need in her heart. Right, and, and her response is to not engage with that, but to kind of stay up here on the surface and ask what was a, a very menial kind of surfacey question, right? Jesus is wanting to get to the heart, but she's like, can I worship here at home or do I need to go to Jerusalem um, where the building is? No doubt, as I've thought about this, I imagine it was probably very difficult for her to engage in like the deep conversation Jesus was wanting to have with her about her life. I imagine it would have been agonizing for her to like reach down into her heart, into her soul and engage with that. And so she kind of stays up here. She stays in her head like many of us do. And it was a thoughtful, good question even. Um, but she's not wanting to really go down. And yet, yet Jesus engages with her. And as we'll see, he's going to bring her down into the heart of the issue as he always does. 
to be fair, it's a good question. Does God care about where we worship? For that matter, does God care what worship looks like at all? Jesus responds to her question in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father. Here's the answer. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about what I will call post-Pentecost worship. God did set up the temple as the place of worship in the Old Testament. That is real. But after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit fell upon his people, we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? What Jesus is talking about here is what will happen after Pentecost when there will be no worship place because God's presence will dwell in his people. We will be the place, if you will. Worship does not happen over there, Jesus is saying, in a physical place. It happens right here in our hearts. After Pentecost, homes would become holy places. Synagogues would become sanctuaries. Courtyards would become churches. And even jail cells would become worship centers. Apparently, God does not care about where we worship as long as our heart is postured in worship, as we will see. I love that Jesus says to her here, a time is coming when you will worship, foreshadowing the salvation was about to, the, the salvation that was about to come to both her and her community. He continues on in verse 22. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, speaking about the Jewish people, we worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. He's simply pointing out the fact that the Savior, the Messiah himself, would come from, from the Hebrew uh, bloodline, from the Hebrew lineage. And, he, and then he says, you do not know what you worship. So here's most likely what Jesus is referring to. The Samaritans had, uh, they were Jewish people who had intermarried with Assyrians. And in doing that, they had made this hodgepodge of religion, taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They had also disregarded all but the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. And so um, be, their ignorance uh, had resulted in this uh, lack of understanding about who re- God really was. And without a lack of understanding, you, uh, you don't know what you worship, Jesus is saying. You worship what you do not know. There was a lack of understanding when they worshiped. And as we will see in the next verse, uh, part of true worship is understanding the truth when we worship. Because the truth is God's word and they had disregarded a lot of it. It was impossible really for them to worship in truth. Verse 23, moving on. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter here, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come So he's like, it's right now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. 
In other words, he's saying the time is coming and is right now when it will not matter where you worship, but how your heart is postured when you worship. The Father is seeking those who will worship him in the spirit and in truth. There's four things that I want to point out here regarding worship, four comparisons, if you will, that I want to make. And we can find ourselves on kind of either side of this as we, we uh, do acts of worship, right? As we do these outward things that, that look worshipful, our hearts can fall into one of these two things. I'm going to make these comparisons here. But first, let me explicitly say so that there's no more confusion about this. Worship is an attitude of the heart. It may take on different forms, singing, giving, obedience, but it is always about the posture of the heart. Okay, the first comparison I want us to see is this. Number one, spirit-filledness versus roteness. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in the spirit. Some of your translations might not have the word the before the word spirit. It may just say, those who worship God must worship him in spirit. Either way, when we look at the whole of scripture, the meaning is pretty clear. Two things I want to point out here. First, to worship in spirit means that our act of worship is spiritual in nature. It's not about where we do it or what form it takes on, but the heart with which we worship. And this has always been God's heart. This has always been what he cared about. This is not just a New Testament thing, right? You look at Psalm 51, David talking to God. He says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, here it is, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God, you will not despise. In other words, you don't want the things that look worshipful if my heart is not there. You want my heart postured in an attitude of adorational worship. Second thing is to worship in the spirit means that we are filled with and led by the Holy Spirit as we worship. God is spirit. And so when we worship him, there must be a sensitivity to his Holy Spirit in us. We must be tuned into his voice and to his leading and to his desires, allowing him to move in us as opposed to just doing the same old root thing, rote thing in the same old way. To worship in the spirit means that there is a livingness to our worship of God. It's not trite. It's not routine. It's not dry. It is alive and it is vibrant. Let me say it like this. I'll put it up on the screen. If the worship of our lives was a sailboat, the spirit would be the wind that propels us closer to the Father. This is what God is after, spirit-filledness in our worship. The second comparison I would like to make is truthfulness versus pretense in our worship. Truthfulness versus pretense. Let's read the same verse again, verse 24. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Again, because the Samaritans rejected most of God's word and because God's word is truth, there would have been no way for them to fully worship God in truth. Such is true today. Two things here. First, to worship God in truth means that worship him according to the whole counsel of his word, especially in light of the New Testament revelation. If God's spirit is the wind in our sails, 
then God's truth is the rudder that keeps our worship on course. Whatever form our worship takes on, it must line up with the heart of God as defined in Scripture. Let me say it like this. A sailboat will never get anywhere without the wind in the sails, right? You can't be moved toward the Father heart of God without the Holy Spirit. But a ship with no rudder will just go around in circles. We got this stand-up paddleboard from that secondhand Costco place the other day. It had no fin. And my kids were like, can we just try it without a fin? I was like, yeah, I don't think it's going to work that good, but let's go. We went out into the Keys, and I was paddling just like this, right? With no rudder, this is how you will be. Without a rudder, you can't get to the destination. You will not get there. Scripture helps us see this is where to go. This is where the path is. The Holy Spirit is the wind in our sails. This truth that Jesus speaks of, and I think it's key. Confession of truth actually frees us up to have this kind of like relationship with God where we are receiving the type of living water that Jesus spoke of here. I think her uh, confession of truth when Jesus is like, um, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. When she starts telling the truth, I think it starts opening up her heart in order to receive what Jesus is wanting to give her because truth, when we declare truth, it actually starts to set us free. It actually starts to set us free. Uh, a woman at our church who's one of our kids ministry workers, um, she saw this beautiful vision a couple years ago on a Sunday morning and um, it was a vessel that was needing to be water and the vessel was our hearts and people were putting their hands over their vessels, uh, preventing the receiving of the water. And the hands over was different things. It was fear, it was shame, it was different reasons, right? God will not force himself. And you cannot receive into something that is closed off. I really believe that um, if you want to see supernatural change in your life and revival in your heart, you have to come to God open and bare. To worship God in truth means to worship him honestly, listen, and to worship him in honesty means to be vulnerable and open, which is coincidentally the same posture that is required to receive. To worship him in honesty requires openness, which coincidentally is the same posture in order to fully receive. Let me say it like this. A fully exposed and open heart allows true worship to flow out and God's life to flow in. He doesn't want pretense. He wants truthfulness. The third contrast here, intimacy versus religiosity. In the Old Testament, if you study worship, Worship was primarily about two things, reverence and sacrifice. First of all, it was about reverence. The first time the word worship is used in the Bible is Genesis chapter 22, and it is this Hebrew word. I'm going to make you say it, shakha. Say shakha. If you want to do it right, you put the ha in there. It means to prostrate oneself in homage before a king or a deity. We have these carpets out front in the sanctuary, right? In front of the stage. And we say like, hey, if you want to get on your face before God, it's not just some weird thing. It comes from this. It means to put your face into the ground like this, like your face at the feet of a king or a deity. 
Worship in the Old Testament was about reverence. And it was about sacrifice. When Israel would come to God, they would bring burnt offerings to the Lord and they would become like a sweet-smelling aroma to God. This sacrifice was so often an act of worship. But in the New Testament, worship is also mainly about two things. But it's not reverence and sacrifice. It is intimacy and sacrifice. First of all, worship in the New Testament is not without a sacrifice, okay? It's not without the sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 20 says that we enter into God's presence in worship by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus. And it's also not without a sacrifice of the saints. Not, not bulls and goats. We don't bring that. We bring our lives and our praise, right? Romans 12, 1 says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your whole lives to God as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Okay, that is our lives. And then Romans three fifteen, our praise. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So worship in the New Testament is about sacrifice, but it is also about intimacy, which I'm going to spend a little bit of time on because that's what our passage says here. And you might not have caught it yet because you're not reading in Greek. Here is the problem with English in general. The New Testament was written in Greek. There are 5 million Greek words. There are less than 200,000 English words. So when you're translating from Greek, trying to translate from Greek to English, some things get lost in translation. Case in point, the Greek word for worship here is this word proskuneo. Everyone say proskuneo. Uh, proskuneo is two words put together. Proskuneo. Pros, it means to turn toward. Kaneo, it means to kiss. The word for worship here literally means to turn toward and kiss. To God, worship is intimacy. And this isn't the only place we see it in this Greek word proskuneo. In Jeremiah 31, the Old Testament, God is speaking about the new covenant that will come when the Messiah uh, comes and ushers in this new covenant. And he says here, um, they will not need to teach their neighbors nor need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least of them to the greatest will know me already. It is the Hebrew word yada. Just say yada. It is the same word that is used when it says Adam went in and knew his wife Eve. In that context, it speaks of sexual relationship between a man and a woman, the most intimate act that two human beings could have. It's the same word God says, they will know me. God in the Old Testament wanted to dwell in the middle of his people, even though the people could not come into his presence because of their sin. In the Bible, uh, we're talked about as the bride of Christ. It is intimacy. In the New Testament, it talks about us coming into the Holy of Holies now where God's presence is. God's desire has always been for honest, vulnerable, living, intimate worship, not routine, stagnant, polished, disconnected religiosity. He doesn't care if you lift your hands or not, or how eloquent your prayers sound, or if you do a lot of nice things, or if you have all of the seemingly right biblical answers, or if you have lots of scripture memorized, if your heart is not postured in love and adoration toward him. He is after a heart of 
intimate relational adoration that is stirred with affection for him because he's good, because of who he is. The kind of heart that responds to his goodness and worships then from that place. And what's telling about this woman's question about worship is she just didn't know this yet. And how could she, right? She just didn't know this. But we don't have an excuse, man. We have the revelation of the New Testament. We don't have an excuse to not know this. And still, like me, for so many years, I just was like, God was after the, 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 the thing, the like action. And he's like, dude, I just want your heart. That's why Jesus says, abide in me. Like it's a heart thing. Abide in me. All that stuff's going to take care of itself. Abide, stay connected to me, an intimate relationship. Dude, the fruit will take care of itself. Yeah, maybe you'll lift your hands. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll sing out loud. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll pray eloquently. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll give away thousands of dollars. Maybe you won't. But it starts in the heart. That is what God is after. And that debate that you may be having like she was having, that philosophy that your brain is wrapped around, that doctrine that your brain is, that issue that your brain is wrapped around, it may very well be preventing you from seeing the good, powerful, prophetic, timely, right now, revival thing that God is doing right in front of you. This woman couldn't recognize what God was doing because she was so distracted by what she thought maybe really mattered to God, but it actually didn't. Lastly, I want us to see as a contrast, devotion versus divided heart. What's interesting to me about this idea of proskuneo, to turn toward and to kiss, is that when you are kissing someone, your face is in this proximity, so close that your view of anything else is almost completely gone. You are solely single-mindedly, single-visually consumed with the face right in front of you. And to me, when I look at the story of this woman, I'm like, I just see her being like, but I got, I got to get my water. It's over here. I got to, that's why I came here. And there's all these people back there and they don't, they don't like me. I'm full of shame. And, and she's looking at all these things and she's like, and plus my husband's, I'm failing constantly. Like five times married now. This, this dude is not even going to marry me. There's no way he's going to marry me. I'm just, I've failed love life. I'm full of, my identity is all wrapped up in this. And, and what about, besides where are we supposed to worship? She's looking like everywhere. She's like, and I just imagine Jesus being like grabbing her face and being like, hey, Look, and she's like, <laughs> right? And she, he's like, give me your face. Give me your face. And he's looking her in the eyes. And he's like, right here. Stay right here. Look, you don't need to, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All that stuff will be added unto you. Everything you need will be given to you. You don't need to worry, sweetheart. You don't need to worry. Stop worrying. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about those people. But what about my shit? Don't worry about my shame. Look in my eyes, man. The love in my eyes is going to overcome your shame right now. Look in my eyes. The love in my eyes is going to overcome your fear right now. Don't worry about it. He's pulling her close. He's pulling her close. He's pulling her close. And as he does, her face gets so close that she's like, oh, Jesus, what? Jesus. And she, John tells us in verse 28, she like puts down her bucket. The whole reason she came was to get water. She's like, I don't even care anymore about that. And the bucket, I said it last week, it represented so much. I think that bucket was full of her shame every time she looked at it by herself. 
It reminded her like you're here by yourself because you're full of shame and shame makes you hide. Every time she looked at it, she was overwhelmed with her failure at love. Every time she looked at it, she was overwhelmed with just the very practical, real need that she needed water. And John is like, she left her bucket and went back and told her people, I think I just found the Messiah. He knew, he knew everything about me. And the implication is he told me everything about me and he loves me. What? He told me everything about me and he still loves me. I saw his face like this and I couldn't even care about all the stuff around here. His face was so close. Proskuneo. Proskuneo. Jesus is like, put your face right here. Put your face right here. See how good that is? See how good it is when you look in my eyes? You don't care about anything else. Who cares about anything else? This is what God is after. And here's the deal. Your heart goes where your eyes are looking. We've been teaching Selah to drive, right? She just got her permit. It's terrifying, by the way. And I'm sitting in the back seat the first couple times she drives, and we're like, Selah, you're going to turn, uh, change lanes over here. And you know what happens the first couple times you drive, where your eyes go, your wheel goes. And so she looks, as she's looking to see if it's clear, the car goes, comes back, goes, comes back. I'm sitting in the back seat, just like, God, help me. I'm going to heaven. I'm dying right now. It's not going to be COVID. I'm dying right now. She's gotten a lot better, baby. You're killing it now. She's good right Right now, but the first few times, man, our, 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 our bodies have a tendency to go where our eyes are looking. This is what happened with this woman, man. Her eyes were looking everywhere else. And as soon as she saw the face of Jesus, as soon as he was like, proskuneo, right here, it seemed like everything else dissipated. Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. To have a divided heart is to have a heart that is given to multiple things. This woman's heart was divided. That's why she couldn't hold the bucket and Jesus at the same time, right? A divided heart tries to hold on to this life and to Jesus at the same time. Jesus said to his disciples though, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, the symbol of sacrifice, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will actually lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it in me, right? That's why John makes this distinction. She let go in order to grab hold. We all have buckets that we need to let go of in order to grab hold of Jesus. He said it in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. The kind of worship that Jesus speaks here is the kind that comes from a heart of devotion that says, God, I'm yours only. I'm only yours, Lord. I'm only yours. I'm surrendered to you. What are you, what are you, what are you saying? I want to follow that. What are you doing? I want to be in touch and in tune with that. It is single-hearted devotion. You need to know, church, that distraction is a subtle ploy of the devil to get our eyes off of Jesus. I mentioned last week that the, the devil sends fiery arrows, it says in Ephesians 6. Well, fiery arrows in wartime are not just meant to destroy stuff, although they can destroy, but they are meant to distract 
They're meant to take our attention off. And so when you shoot fire arrows, we're like, that. what about this? What am I going to do about that? What about this thing? Where are we going to worship? Or the governor said we're not allowed to sing now. Or are we allowed to sing? Well, this thing, what if my family gets sick? Well, I got to do this. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, but I got to pay my bills. Oh my God. There's all of this, like, oh, should we worship in houses? Should we worship in the, in the streets? Should we worship in the, There's all of these distractions. God's like trying to bring us to the heart. He's trying to bring us back to the heart. And the enemy, meanwhile, when we're like this, well, the news said that, and the person said that, and then he's just like, ooh, ha, ha, fire every darts. Fire, keep firing those darts, y'all. Keep firing those darts. All these people in reality of Ventura, just distracted by the darts. Keep doing it. And he's distracting us from what God is doing right in front of us. This is part of why we're doing this seven-day media fast, is to get our eyes back on Jesus, to be like, dude, I'm putting away the darts, and I'm like going into my private space with the Lord, because sometimes we don't even realize how distracted we are until we give ourselves some distance from it, and we're like, oh, wow, I was super caught up in that thing. I didn't even realize it. Now, it's, it's so easy for that to happen in my, in my life, too, with the Internet and the media. And, and it starts to shape our, our worldview and how we see all the current events. This woman's mind was being shaped by the world, by this hot topic debate of we're going to do, well, why can't we worship here? Moses, we think Moses set up an altar on this hill hundreds of years ago. Why can't we worship here? You say you got to do it. She was distracted being conformed by the ideas of the world. But scripture tells us in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's what happens as a result. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to know what God's will is? You're like, what's God doing? I want to know God's heart. I want to know what his pleasing, perfect will is. What's he doing right here? You want to hear his voice? It cannot happen when the world is shaping our thinking. When the media is shaping our thinking, even well-meaning people, okay, even some Christian people who are not speaking explicit things from Scripture. Someone asked recently, where do the pastors get their news from? And it was kind of like that. And I think what they were saying was, what is shaping your perspective, Dom, Billy, Chad, on what is happening right now? Who are you taking your cues from? My question is, why would I ever allow a news media outlet or podcaster or YouTuber to dictate how I see anything in the world when Jesus Christ himself offers me his eternal perspective that supersedes the opinions of every single person on the planet. And I'm not trying to be cute here, but our worldview should not be shaped by anybody when it can be shaped by the word of God. To answer the question, I read just enough news to get updated on the facts of what is happening. And then when all these opinions start getting shared, I'm like, dude, I'm out. I'm going to go to scripture because Fox, CNN, uh, the BBC cannot tell me how I ought to view current events. Jesus can do that through his word. His word is a light uh, unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Because what's happening right now is not new. Well, how do you know, bro? There's never been a COVID. Yes, there has. Have you ever read the Bible? This is not new. This, is, this stuff is all over the Bible. It's been happening for millennia. And God tells us what to do about it. He tells us how to view it. That's why we're doing this series. That's the, if you haven't been listening to the sermons, that's why we're doing this. Because the Bible tells us how to think about these things. That is what is shaping my worldview right now. That is what is shaping my worldview. That's what I'm taking my cues from. Otherwise, I get caught up in all the pointless debates that are a useless waste of time, like Paul told Titus. And church, Jesus is saying, proskuneo, pro 
Dios Caneo, turn your face right here. Put your lips right here. Turn your face back to me. He's like a Navy SEAL in a war zone guiding us through who says, you stay right here. You stay right here. You keep your eyes on me. You stay close to me. Don't look over there. Don't go over there. You stay right here. That is what Jesus is saying to us right now. And so tomorrow, like I said, beginning in the morning, we're doing this seven-day media fast to help us get our eyes fully on Jesus, to quiet down the distractions. We are going to starve ourselves from social media, news media, podcasts, YouTube for a week in order to fill ourselves with more of God and more of his heart and his mindset. And we're going to do it through prayer and worship. And friend, listen, if there is something distracting you today, something preventing you from holding on to Jesus, there's some kind of bucket, something that is distracting you from single-hearted devotion, would you let it go to grab hold of Jesus? It's what repentance means, right? It's turning toward him. And that can be the most beautiful word today to turn back to him. I'll end with this really quick thing. We got away with the family for a few days to someone let us borrow their lake house and their boat. It was awesome. The boat broke after two days, but it's okay. And uh, we had a beautiful, wonderful time. But in the middle of all of that wonderfulness, uh, my wife, Emily, was like crippled by fear for the first like day and a half we were there for no reason. It's not like a normal thing. She doesn't normally get like anxious, but she was like crippled by fear. All of our kids were like, mom, what's wrong? Mom, what's wrong? And she's like, oh, mom, I'm so afraid of everything. She was crippled by fear. And she finally got some time, like a day and a half in to just sit down with the Lord. And she was like, Lord, can you just speak to me? I just, I need, I need you. I, I feel like, terrified and I close my eyes. I just, I just see like, I see me there just like shaking and terrified. And can you just speak to me? And the Lord was so sweet. He, he came and he showed her father, son, spirit all showed up and God just grabbed her face. And he said these three words. I want to share this with you. These three words. So simple. It's all, she was like, I don't really ever like hear God's voice, but it felt like I was hearing him. It was so clear. He said, Surrender, abide, I love you. Surrender, abide, I love you. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, that's it. That's this, that's this sermon. It's surrender, it's let go. It's abide, grab hold of Jesus. And it's, I love you, rest in the unfailing love of God which when we are there in that place, none of this other stuff even matters. And he said to her, if you just do that, surrender, abide, rest in my love. All that other stuff will just take care of itself. I want to invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Jesus, when I look at this story of you with this woman, I am overwhelmed by your compassion for us. Oh God. Oh. The width, the breadth, the height to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. 
Would you open our hearts to experience that kind of love so that we too can rest and let go like this woman was finally able to do? We want to let go of shame. We want to let go of fear. We want to let go of preconceived ideas that we just think like, this is it. God's all about this thing. We've made it our like mountain and our hill that we die on. Maybe it's not the divine thing. Would you bring us back to the thing that matters? Would you bring us back to your heart, God? Would you turn our eyes back to you, Lord? So that the the things that are out there distracting us and pulling our attention would just like fade away. If you're at home and you need prayer for anything, uh, there is a prayer team waiting this week who would love to pray for you. There's a link in the description of that YouTube video where you can go to and have someone call you to pray for you. You could just let us know how to pray for you and we'll just pray for you on our own. Also, if you're tuning in today and you don't really know much about Jesus, you certainly don't have a relationship with him, but as I've spoken today, you're like, man, I want to know that God. I want to know him. He wants to know you too. In fact, he already does. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the deepest thoughts of your heart. And today he invites you to come into a relationship with him. We'd love to help you and talk with you about him. You can go to that same link in the YouTube description. Let's worship now through song. Let's respond to him. Let's allow our hearts to be full of adoration. Take a posture of praise if you want. I know for me, sometimes a physical posture helps my heart follow. Let's respond to his goodness. Let's turn our eyes upon him now.